The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Good morning. Um, so for any of you who don't know me or who weren't here last week, my name's Ines Friedman, and um, uh, I teach here periodically. And um, doing a, this is the second of a three-week series um, on the three kalesas, we call them. And the kalesas um, are commonly known as uh, greed, hatred, and delusion. And they're considered the... Uh, there's different ways of referring to them. Some people call them defilements of the mind, the things that keep you uh, from being happy, from being at peace in your life, um, or the torments of the mind. Um, Daniel Goleman refers to them as deflictive emotions. That's kind of the kind of Western point of view. You know, these are the emotions that come into our minds. You know, from the little emotions. You know, where, you know, how much longer? You know. Uh, the, to the really big emotions, you know, the fury, the anger, to you know, might lead to violence or the um, resentment or you know, all the variety, all the different colors of um, uh, of unpleasant emotions or greed, you know, or wanting things desperately, or um, so it includes the whole range of um, of afflictive emotions, the things that keep us from being happy in our lives. Uh, the three these are the three roots greed, um, in other words, ill will and delusion are considered like the roots of all that variety of of other afflictive emotions. They're kind of like at the bottom of that, and and the way we relate to them is that um, you know they're kind of a potential in us. You know they're kind of buried deep in us. They're depending on our conditioning, so they're. Um, uh, you know, you might be totally happy, everything's going really well, and, you know, somebody cuts you off on the freeway, suddenly, out of nowhere, it seems, this anger arises, right? You know, even conditioned, those roots are still in there. And even though, you know, when things are, everything's going well, we might be really happy, but the moment something goes differently than we wanted, those roots arise. And um, it's really what, what this mindfulness practice is meant to address, it's meant to really, you know, go deep into those roots and slowly, slowly, um, you know, they begin to ease their grip in our lives. Um, one definition, you know, I, you know, you often hear the word enlightenment or liberation in relation to, you know, meditation practice, you know. But one definition of enlightenment is being free of, of greed, you know, wanting, ill will, you know, wanting things to go away, or, or hatred, and delusion, you know, which is you know, not seeing things as they really are. Uh, so this week we're going to focus mostly on the root of ill will. You know, it's been called aversion, it's been called hatred. Uh, hatred's a little strong sometimes, especially if, you know, what's keeping you unhappy is your bra strap kind of you know, digging in a little bit, you know. So, you know, I prefer, you know, using the word aversion, but just knowing that that kind of includes, you know, um, the whole range of, of uh, negative emotions. It's kind of having a hostile attitude towards the things we don't like. Okay, so for instance, you know, um, nobody likes being sick, right? You know, it's unpleasant. Uh, you know, maybe you have um, aches and pains and you have a fever. Nobody, you know, nobody's going to like that. It's unpleasant. We're wired to not like the unpleasant. That's a human trait. But we don't have to be hostile towards it. You know, oh, I wish I weren't sick. Oh, da, da, da. you know, we can just be, oh, this is, you know, it's not, you know, I don't like it. But we can still have our hearts and our minds be at peace with it. Um, you know, one of the things that practice teaches us to do, um, you know, that I find is the greatest gift in practice is to be comfortable being uncomfortable. To just really learn, how can I be comfortable when things are uncomfortable? Um, you know, aversion is turning away from what we don't like. It's the opposite of mindfulness. Mindfulness is turning towards things, right? We're going to pay attention to them. Aversion is trying to push them away, getting them out of there. So, you know, the, the mindfulness practice just keeps bringing us to be present with whatever happens in our lives. 
Um, you know, sometimes you can say that um, greed and aversion are two sides of the same coin. Um, for instance, let's say you're, go- you're out for a walk and you, know, you went too far and now it's getting dark and it's really cold and you're, you know, you're really very uncomfortable, it's really cold. Now, it might be that your mind is going, oh, I want to be home, I want to be home, I want to be home, which is all you know, greed, desire, I want, want, want. Or it can be saying, oh, I, wish, I hate being cold, I hate being cold. So, so you're having the same unpleasant experience, but on one hand, you, you've got this greed thing, you know, where it's going, oh, I want to be, be warm, or you can have it the opposite side of the coin, which is like, it's horrible being cold, I wish I wasn't cold. And so um, it depends on your conditioning which way your mind's going to go. Either way, if you have those roots present in relation to being cold, you're going to be unhappy, right? You know, you're, you're looking to the future instead of, okay, how is it being here in the present? This is unpleasant, I'm cold, it's uncomfortable, but can I be at peace in this walk? Uh, what can I get of value in this walk as I, as I and, you know, these, these last 15 minutes of walking in the cold? Um, can we not push away our experience? Can we not grasp when, when the experience is unpleasant? Um, you know, one, one um, it's kind of an interesting way of thinking of it, one way of uh, um, categorizing people. I don't know if you've heard this, it's the three types of people, the greed type, the hatred type, and the delusion type. Um, you know, it's a way oversimplification of, you know, and, and people really aren't just those simple things, but, but it's a really interesting way of becoming aware of those tendencies in ourselves. And uh, so imagine three people go to a party. And, you know, there's a lot of people at the party, there's lots of food, you know, the house is all dressed up, you know. And so the, the greed type walks in and sees right in front, you know, walk in, there's this beautiful painting of a large painting of a naked woman, very beautiful. And they just stand there and go, wow, I've got to get that. You know, I've got to get one just like it, I want it. You know, that's the greed type. Um, the aversion type walks in, and instead of this beautiful painting, they, they notice, oh, God, look at that horrible stain on the rug. You know, how could they, you know, have a party and not clean the rugs, you know? Uh, and the delusion type, they walk in, they don't even see the painting, right? They just kind of walk in, and, you know, and they, they see two people talking, you know? And uh, these two people are talking, but it's really, really important. They're right in the middle of a very intense conversation, and they're likely to go up to that person, begin talking, completely unaware that they're interrupting. That's the delusion type. They don't even notice these things. Uh, we all have bits and pieces of these, right? Um, and sometimes in some situations, we kind of fall into one area. In other situations, we go in a different direction. Uh, but some people have more of a predominance, you know, for certain types of things. Um, I remember um, there was, um, I was talking to uh, some of the teachers at one of the retreat centers back east, and um, they said it's really important to have um, aversion types in any kind of uh, steering committee. Because if you get too many greed types, you know, they, they want, want, want. They'll, they just don't run with everything, you know. And it's the aversion type that says, hey, wait a second, wait a second. This is what's wrong with that idea, you know. And without that really nice balance, um, uh, things don't go really well. And um, each one of those has a wise aspect. So um, people who... Um, who, who are version types, who have the tendency to push away things. They're also people who notice what's wrong. You know, so, so as it matures, as the, the hostility in ourselves begins to decrease, that really turns into like a discriminating wisdom. So those tendencies are not all bad. You know, they, they can uh, transform into really useful qualities in ourselves. Um, But that's the difference between seeing what's wrong. It's like, sure, you notice a stain in the rug and having a sense of judgment, hostility towards it. So what we're really looking at is not the noticing what's wrong, but the, the accompanying emotion of, of um, 
how could they do that? You know, a little righteousness or, or oh, how horribly ugly or, you know, whatever, whatever it is that we might respond with. Um, the other thing to, to consider with, with aversion, you know, is that hurt and fear makes us feel vulnerable. Right, you know. So if if you've had an accident, you know, uh, and there's a lot of pain, you feel vulnerable. You know, if um, uh, if you're afraid, um, you know, of a tiger coming, you know, you feel vulnerable. Okay, um, anger gives us temporary strength. When we get really angry, anybody here not been really angry? Yeah, um, I'd like to talk to you if, if there is anybody here. <laughs> Uh, but you've all experienced, if you're really angry, you, you feel strong. You know, you could, you know, people punch walls, they've got strength, right? I've, I've known people who've punched holes through walls, uh, which normally if you said, would you punch a hole through this wall? You know, most of us would be kind of shy, right? Um, but it gives us this temporary sense of strength. And so it's a very, it can be a very seductive strength. Because when we feel... Um, weak and vulnerable, you know, it doesn't feel good. It feels, it's scary. It's scary to feel weak and vulnerable. So it's very easy to get angry as a way not, of not to feel those feelings. And that anger makes us feel temporarily strong. And it can seem like a really good strategy. You know, I'll get angry and then I don't have to deal with this stuff. You know, now I feel strong, you know. And a lot of people get so addicted to that cycle of whenever things are out of control. You know, for instance, like a lot of people don't have much control of work. They have an employer, you know, or, or customers, and they just can't control the situation. So they feel a little bit helpless. So then they get, can get really angry when they come home, you know, and that lets them feel like they're, you know, hey, I can do things when I'm angry. You know, I've got control in my life. And, um, you know, there's even a, a term for it called a rageaholic, right? And, you know, I don't know if anybody has known a rageaholic or, you know, where they just like being angry. And then they feel good, you know, they go, oh, okay, I, you know, and they've created a mess in their life, but, you know, well, that felt good, you know. And so it's like it's a little feedback mechanism. Hurt or fear can be either physical, mental, or emotional, right? So, for instance, um, it's pretty obvious, you know, that hurt if you break a leg, right? That's going to hurt, you know, and you go, oh, my gosh, now, now all this um, aversion can happen. Now I'm not going to be able to drive my car. Now I'm not going to be able to do this. You know, a lot of aversion can come from that. Um, men, uh, emotional, for instance, somebody uh, hurts your feelings. Somebody says, you know, um, you know, I think you're a snob, you know. You know, it hurts your feelings. You, you feel bad. You know, so it's emotional hurt. Um, and then there's mental hurt. For instance, um, you know, we can sit, you know, how you can ruminate in your mind and have all these unpleasant ideas in your mind. You know, like, um, you know, life is, is so difficult, you know. It's not like an emotion, but it's like a very unpleasant mental thought, right? Life is difficult. Uh, life is this, life is that. Or the world, the world is, is such a terrible place. You know, these ideas that can, you know, it's not that there isn't a whole lot of very challenging things in this world. You know, there's war, there's um, death, there's illness. There are a lot of very difficult, difficult things in this world. But the mind can focus on a flower or it can focus on war. You know, we have a choice. And maybe focusing on how beautiful a flower is, it's a very pleasant experience. Focusing on all the people suffering in the world can be very painful. And I'm not saying that one is better than the other. But, but that's a source of pain. Now, the, there are times when it's very valuable to focus on pain, on the pain of the world. It allows compassion to arise. But if we have aversion to that pain, what happens? We add hatred to that pain. We, we push it away. Compassion doesn't arise when we can't connect with the pain. Like if you see a little kid, um, let me... Let me bring it into something more manageable. You know, work gets pretty heavy out there. Um, but you take a little kid and they fall down and they hurt themselves. Okay? Now let's, let's say someone you're very close to, you know, and you're responsible for. 
Now you, you can pay really close attention to the child and go, wow, they're hurting and they're crying and I'm going to go hold them and make them feel better. Or you could be focused on, that shouldn't have happened. I was a bad parent or I was a bad caretaker. You know? And your attention isn't on the kid. It's on your own stuff. You know? So aversion um, takes your attention away from what we don't like. Mindfulness brings your attention towards what you don't like. And if it's painful, it brings compassion. You, you, you feel love and compassion. You want to hold that kid. The heart reacts naturally to that. You know, we're all conditioned in different ways. You know, like for instance, um, um, you know, like, I'm really good with, um, with emergencies, you know. I've always been really good with emergencies. You know, somebody uh, cuts something, starts bleeding all over the place. I'm the person who's, you know, who, who can handle that, you know. Uh, somebody needs somebody during surgery to hold somebody's hands, you know. I'll, you know, I'm the person who's really comfortable doing that. And, you know, and aversion doesn't arise in me. You know, I just, I'm conditioned that way. That's the way my, 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 my mind works. Um, but for me, one of the really challenging places that would immediately bring up anger and hostility, and I think I probably brought it up last week, is um, being on the phone with tech support. You know, and, you know, it would just, you know, I, you know, I do a lot of my work on the computer and, and I want my computer to work just right. And when something isn't working, you know, and, you know, and to me that was like much more challenging to deal with than life and death situations. <laughs> life and death situations kind of brought me into, um, you know, my compassion heart. This brought me into, I'm not getting my way, you know, and, um, you know, and incompetence, you know, how could they be so incompetent, you know? So that's the way my mind is conditioned. And we all have the different ways we're conditioned. You know, we learn from our parents, we learn from the school, we learn from our friends. So we react to different things. Um, it always, you know, uh, stunned me, you know, like my parents were European, you know, and so they came from a different uh, uh, cultural background than I did. And, um, you know, and I would, you know, and I, you know, I grew up, you know, and, and they spoke different languages, you know, and so, you know, growing up in the, in the West, you know, um, I used the common language that, that we used, and, you know, and I would talk to my father about my mother sometimes, and I'd call her her, yeah, and so, and, and her, and he would get really angry that I called her her, you know, instead of my mother, you know, mother, you know, and, you know, he didn't get that, it wasn't an insult, you know. It's like it was, you know, her sounded like dishonorable somehow, <laughs> and you know, so he had like an instant reaction. All I had to do was her, and she would say, and he would just get uptight, you know. And it's conditioning. It's conditioning, you know. I, I felt that way at the beginning of the women's movement when we started going from referring to women uh, from girls, or even worse, broads, you know, and, um, you know, and, you know, no, now we're women, you know, and it was very important. I think it was a very important change in our culture. But at the same time, what happened, it was so important to me that if somebody accidentally said the word girl, including a woman, if a woman said that referred to their friends as girls, you know, and uh, my body would just cringe and tightness, you know, because I, I had conditioned myself to be on the lookout for this. You know, this has to change, so it's on the lookout, and my body would react. I had conditioned myself that way. And, um, and the reason I'm referring to this is that we all have conditioning. We all have conditioned. And one of the other interesting definitions of liberation is called the unconditioned. Nibbana, or liberation, is called the unconditioned. And in a way, it can be very, very obvious, you know. If somebody says something and you automatically react, you're conditioned. You have no freedom. You know, freedom comes from a something happens and you're able to have a choice. That's where freedom lies, the freedom to not react in a habitual way, to look at the situation the way it really is. Um, what happens when we react... Uh, we often don't really, we, we're so busy reacting that we don't really get a chance to look at things the way they really are. You know, like somebody might insult us uh, just out of lack of consciousness. They don't even know they're insulting us, but we're already taking offense. Or, um, 
You know, somebody might hurt us because they're hurting. You know, and we don't see the whole picture. You know, we're just rapidly reacting. And we often react and don't see that, uh, like if somebody, you know, tech support, if they're incompetent, you know, so now not only don't I get my computer fixed, but now my mind's in a dark state. You know, it makes it harder to fix my computer, right? So, so it doesn't serve me. And, and that's the issue with when we react and don't have choice, we're usually hurting ourselves in some way or the other. The other thing about aversion, you know, um, some people have an attitude of aversion, um, you know, so that it doesn't matter what it is, they're always looking for what's wrong, right? That's the aversion type, right? Um, and aversion can often help support a sense of identity. Um, you know, being really getting a lot of identity out of what we like and what we don't like. You know, you hear a lot of people where everything that they, you know, I found the best restaurant. That's the best restaurant, you know, and I'm the one who found it. You know, there's a whole lot of identity sometimes. It's not just, oh, I saw this great restaurant I'd like to share it with you. It has a very different feel than I found the best restaurant, you know. Or, um, you know, or that play was terrible. You know, that play was terrible. You know, a very strong sense of, of identity. Not, you know, I, you know, I didn't care for it, you know. And this is what was wrong, who I didn't like. This is what I liked. You know, it can be a very kind of learning experience, you know, when we look at something, uh, some art, and we look at our responses to it. It can be a very beautiful learning experience. It doesn't have to be, that was a terrible painting. That was a terrible this, a bad that. that uh, you know, and, and we, what we often do is we use use all our likes and dislikes as a way of propping up a false identity. Uh, an identity that's based on, um, you know, kind of a puffed up sense of self. I'm the decider. I'm the, I think the president said that, didn't they? Um, you know, I'm the one who, you know, who, who decides whether this is good or bad. You know, it gives us a sense of power, a sense of, of uh, puffed up self. And, you know, there's a kind of pleasure in that. And that's the problem with a lot of these afflictive emotions. <clears throat> they all have a little bit of something pleasurable. Otherwise, we wouldn't do it. You know, so if we get puffed up, you know, we go, yeah, I'm, you know, I'm great. You know? But at the same time, you know, other pe- often other people see through it. People don't like it. If you're great, then what are they? You know? So it creates a lack of intimacy with the world when, when, we, when we do that, when we take a lot of identity. Anytime we identify with something, we're, we're not connecting with the world as it is. Um, <clears throat> Habitual um, aversion is often due to one-sided attention. Now, this is a really interesting point. Okay, uh, so for instance, let's say um, um, you know you have the tendency to be critical of people. Okay, so that you know you you see somebody and you go, boy, they talk too slow. You know, God, I wish, you know, they, they just talk too slow. Or somebody else, you know, um, God, look at the way they dress. Or, you know, there's all these little habitual ways that, that we c- the mind can focus, you know. But if you look at any human being, you know, you could focus on how tall they are, how short they are, how, what they're wearing, what color their face is, their, their hands, their lips, their, uh, what they're saying, you know, what their life might be like. Um, you know, what, you know, do they have a family? Do they have friends? What, you know, there's like a million aspects to a human being, you know, but we can be in the habitual uh, way of just looking at people in a very uh, one-dimensional way. You know, for instance, sometimes I've seen um, college professors, they kind of uh, split the room into the smart people and the, and the not smart people, you know, and that's how they view people. Instead of, of seeing, well, you know, what, what does each person, you know, you see them as individuals, you know. Um, and in that habit, in that, in that uh, habitual way of looking at things, in the same way that I mentioned before, you can have the habit of always looking, um, you know, let's say you're walking, um, you go to somebody's home and you just look at what you want that they have. You know, it's the same thing. You know, it might not be aversion, it might be greed. But it's a habit of one-sided looking at things as, oh, that's something I could get. That's something I could buy. That's something, sometimes people are shopaholics, right? They're always on the lookout for what they could buy. 
Um, so, or afflictive emotions can, can come from just this very narrow way of looking at our lives over and over and over again. You know, this is what's important, you know, and, and we can focus that way. And in that is the, is the cure itself. Because if you look at yourself, like one of the really wonderful exercises, um, you know, I've, um, I've had sometimes when I've done like longer courses where people do homework, you know, and one of the exercises I love to have people do is you go to a public place, you know, where you, you, know, where you can watch people like at the airport, um, bus station, and just watch people and, you know, spend a couple of minutes just looking at them and, and seeing whatever comes to mind, you know, any judgments that come to mind, becoming aware of them. You know, most people have the habitual things, you know, um, God, look at the way they're, they're dragging their kid along, you know, and, or, you know, look at what they're wearing. How could they dress up? You know, all these little judgments, right? And then I have them spend like five minutes finding something they like in everybody they see. And it's a very powerful exercise. You know, like even if the person's screaming at the top of their lungs at their, at their kid, right? You know, is there something in that person that we can find, that we can like, that we can appreciate? You know, maybe we can appreciate the fact, God, that, that person's in a lot of pain, and I've been in a lot of pain. Or maybe we can appreciate that, um, you know, that they, you know, um, if you can't really find anything, you focus maybe, oh, look at that pretty, uh, they were really nice looking socks. Just as a way of, of taking your mind away from the habitual, God, that guy's a schmuck, you know, <laughs> that, kind, that kind of attitude. You know, just, just as a practice. And you see what it does to your mind when you're looking for what's good, when you're looking for what's, you know, for what you can be at peace with. And it has a very significant shift in our minds. And often we are living our lives just in this habitual, uh, you know, judgments that go in, a, in the same pattern all the time. Um, and that's what's so wonderful about the practice of mindfulness, is that we take some time aside to, to really slow down the mind and not react habitually. So, you know, the practice... Um, of working with aversion, with this very deep root, uh, there's two ways of working with it, either by getting to know it or by learning the opposite. You know, so the opposite of, of anger, of hostility, is loving kindness, uh, forgiveness, serenity. So you can work from either point of view. So, so first I want to address a little bit of working with um, by getting to know it, by getting, getting to see it and understand it. So, so mindfulness of a strong emotion like anger um, is what we call the middle path. Okay? So people can be angry. Let's say somebody insults you. you know, um, And... Uh, you could get really angry and act out and really get mad at them and yell at them or whatever, you know, uh, some form of acting out. Or some people, you know, they're kind of like a doormat. They just suppress it. You know, it's like, okay, I'm going to stuff it. I'm going to be a, a good little girl, really polite, you know. And, and neither of those are healthy. When we act out with anger, we usually make a mess in the situation. We lose a friend, we um, lose a job. There's, there's a lot of things that can happen from acting out anger. When we suppress anger, you know, and go, okay, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to be good. I'm going to shove all those feelings down inside me, you know. Uh, that kind of repression causes us to get sick. It causes resentment to build. It causes a lot of unhappiness. So mindfulness is kind of the middle path. It's we allow ourselves to really see our, our anger or hurt. Uh, usually hurt happens and anger follows before we can even notice the hurt. So, so we look at it and, and we try to hang out with it. We get to know it. We get to see how, how it is in our bodies. You know, if you notice, you know, when you're feeling angry, you know, like let's say somebody, um, 
an example I use, you know, let's say your boss took credit for your work and you got really angry. You couldn't really deal with, you know, you can't really afford to lose your job, so you don't say anything. Um, but it, as the day goes on, you start calming down, you're calming down, you're you know, beginning to feel a little bit better. Uh, you get home and tell somebody, you get just as angry all over again. You know, so we can feed our anger, right? You know, so we, we, um, you know, we can fuel it, you know, with the stories we tell about the situation. And so what we want to do with mindfulness is want to really stay in touch with those feelings until they pass. Um, you know, any strong emotion, when it arises, has, it arises, it peaks, and it fades, if we hang with the emotion, we allow it, even though it's really uncomfortable, and, you know, if we stay within our bodies and are just really stay present with it, it will pass, right? I mean, the worst blow-ups we had are over. They're blow-ups, right? They're, they, they happen, they're gone. But if we can stay present for them, then we, have, we can get a lot of value out of it. We can begin to uh, ride that wave of the emotion without reacting outward and without suppressing it. So we're not hurting ourselves. We're not hurting others. You know, one of the... So the basic practice of working with anger can be going to the body. Because that's where there's the sensations are. That allows us to get some presence, to get some sense of what's going on. And it, it can help prevent us from, from acting out in a way that's hurtful. Um, when we act out of anger, it's rarely skillful. It's rarely, even if we don't do something terrible, we do it with a tone of, you know, like you can, you can tell your kid, um, uh, clean up your room. Let's say you've told them 50 times, and now you're telling them for the 51st time that day. You know? And you can say it in a very peaceful manner, clean up your room. If you don't clean up your room, you don't get to watch TV or whatever it is they want to do, right? Uh, or you can say it in a tone that's very damaging. You know, It's the same words, but, but unresolved anger in ourselves, anger that we don't feel in ourselves, we're not able to... to um, allowed to move through us comes out with, with something that's damaging. And that, that tone of voice that says, clean up your room with the hostility is damaging to any relationship. Hostility is a, causes damage. You know, I know there's, you know, there's, there's you know, um, a whole movement about expressing anger and all this stuff, but, um, and, I, and I realize that, that might, there might be some um, differences of opinion about that. You know, and there are times where it might be really appropriate to express anger in a certain way. So it's not an absolute thing, but it's very clear that by screaming at your kid, clean up your room, that it's, it's not causing any benefit. You know, so I, so I don't mean to be completely absolutist with, with, with these ideas. Um, the other emotion that we often triggers a lot of aversion is fear. Because fear, basically, we're, we feel vulnerable, right? Whether we're afraid of public speaking or we're afraid of the tiger, right? You know, we feel vulnerable. Um, but fear is being afraid of something that hasn't yet happened, right? You know, so, so we're... A lot of the things we're afraid of um, are things we imagine. You know, and one of my favorite quotes is uh, from Mark Twain, you know, some of the worst things in my life never happened. You know, the, so our minds often create uh, you know, a lot of the, the excess you know, of fear. Uh, fear is really useful. We want to be afraid when there's a fire, right? You know, fear tells us, run away, go away from here, get out of here, quick. You know, so it's a very useful thing. It becomes an afflictive emotion when we're afraid of things um, that we imagine or that, <clears throat> or that it's just unhelpful in our lives. So I'm going to give you um, one more quote, you know, that I really like... Um, you know, the most preventive thing for working with aversion is, uh, for afflictive emotions, is mindfulness and being able to have a choice, right? And so, um, I don't know if how many of you have read Viktor Frankl. You know, he was a survivor of the concentration camps. 
And um, this is what he wrote. We who lived in concentration camps can remember those who walked through the huts comforting others, giving away their last piece of bread. They may have been few in number, but they offer sufficient proof that everything can be taken from a person but one thing, the last of human freedoms, to choose one's attitude in any given set of circumstances, to choose one's own way. And, you know, that's really what we're talking about. This was like a really horrible situation, you know, and, and these people chose to focus on their generosity of heart, on their kindness, on their compassion. And so when, um, you know, when things happen that we don't like, you know, um, we get a flat tire, you know, uh, how do we respond to it? You know, do we respond to it by it shouldn't have happened, or do we respond to it uh, with some wisdom, with patience, with compassion? Oh, what an opportunity to stand here. I, I didn't get to meditate this morning. I get to meditate waiting for AAA. How wonderful. <laughs> you know, how do we make the best out of each situation in our lives? Um, so I'd like to do, uh, you know, it's open up for comments and questions about, you know, how... Um, aversion, anger, um, these emotions um, have the impact they've had in your life or any questions you have about the talk. And I'd like to, um, after we're done with that, I'd like to just end with a little bit of loving-kindness practice at the very end. Uh, So um, I'd like to hear from you if if you have anything. Any comments? Yes. I've been noticing um, um, the aversions that I most frequently notice are fairly light, you know, the annoyance in traffic and, you know, if I drop something and it breaks or... But what I've been aware of more is that there's this sense of being out of control or the desire to be in control of anything and everything, which I'm kind of like, oh, what is that about? And it was, I guess, one of the things that I found interesting about it was that I never connected that to, to um, ill will before. Mm. Uh, maybe comment on that. Yeah. Yeah, so when we're out of control, we're helpless, right? So that feeling of helplessness is really unpleasant. You know, helplessness really doesn't feel good. You know, and when we're not willing to feel that, helplessness, then we want to do something, control it, you know, and so we want to push that helplessness away, so we have aversion to that, that feeling. And so helplessness would be something to look at then? Yeah, yeah, so when you're, when you're controlling, you're trying to control a situation, okay, um, in your mind, what is it I don't want to feel? You know, that's a way of directly going right to the problem. What is it I'm trying not to feel? Because when you're controlling something, you know, there's definitely something you don't want to happen. So what is it that you don't want to happen, right? And, and you don't want it to happen because you don't want to feel a certain way. So, so you can take a little bit of reflection time to really begin to look at that. You know, sometimes, you know, um, you know when we have a meditation practice... Um, you know, we have a habitual way of when things get uncomfortable, we really focus on the breath quickly, you know, and, and sometimes we go there too quickly, you know, um, and, and it's a really artful balance, you know. Um, you know, if we get uncomfortable, it, it's, it's really useful to see that discomfort. So sometimes we want to really notice that discomfort be- before saying, okay, let me get my mind really calm. Now, sometimes the mind's chaotic. You may want to get calm first, okay? So, um, you know, all of you have different levels of practice, so I, I, you know, and experience. You need to develop a little bit of, of calm and stability to be able to look at your mind. So if you're a beginner, you really want to focus on, let me get my mind a little bit stable. Let me stay with the breath at least 10 minutes so that my mind can actually begin to look at what's there. If your mind's too chaotic uh, and it's just going from here to there to there to there, you're not going to have a chance to see clearly because your mind's jumping around too quickly. But once the mind gets a little bit stable, then when unpleasant things arise, 
Notice how you re- your relationship to them before quickly returning to the breath. That can give you a lot of wisdom to begin to work with this stuff, with these roots. Um, if you're the kind of person who sits down, you know, starts meditating, you get calm right away, sometimes a lot of aversion doesn't arise. You know, like when I get really concentrated, you know, I'm, I'm feeling pretty good, but that stuff doesn't come up. But I, you know, get in my car and it, it shows up then. So if that's the case, take time to reflect during the day. You know, one of the really beautiful practices is reflection practice. And it's something that's, um, I think, in a more simple life, people, people used to walk to the store. They had lots of time to, to just think. You know, and now, you know, the way life is for a lot of us is they, they have no time with that input. You know, they walk to the store, but they have their headset on. Um, you know, listening to you know, music, radio, maybe even good things like Dharma talks, but they may not have any time that's just really hang out thinking time. You know, we all need thinking time. We all need time to just let the mind reflect on these things. Um, So if we're too busy, 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 uh, that doesn't happen. Um, Yeah, so uh, that was kind of a long response. (laughs) So... Um, yes. What do you do with the <clears throat> anger or um, seeing someone else act out towards another person mm-hmm. continuously? What do you do with that anger that you're feeling towards that individual's character defects that you are seeing that are so blatant? The yeah. negative, the negativity. Yeah. Yeah, so, so, so the first question that I ask, is this a situation that I can help improve? If it isn't, then the only choice I have is to deal with my own anger. Okay? Now, is there anything helpful about that anger? No. Right? You know, so, so then I experience my own anger. I allow myself to feel my own anger. And, uh, and then I don't continue to feed it with ideas, he shouldn't be this way, they shouldn't be that way. So we keep, you know, so I start looking at, at that person a little bit more realistically. When my own anger subsides, I'm able to look at that person and say, God, to be that angry and acting out that way, they're really hurting. And I start looking at them in, in a broader way. Instead of somebody who's behaving a way I don't like, I can look at the root of, well, why is somebody so angry? You know, why are they, you know, they, you know, you can't, if you're angry all the time, they're not happy. You know, they've got high blood pressure, they've got ulcers, they've got all sorts of problems. You know, their life's a mess. Anybody who's angry all the time, their life's a mess. They don't have uh, people who like them, <laughs> you know, so they don't have friends, you know. And so I can start looking at them, you know, from, with a lot of compassion. Boy, this is a real suffering human being. But I also don't demand myself to get from there to there quickly, you know, but I incline my mind in that direction, you know, it's very hard, like for me, you know, like, like the, the person I've always used as the um, uh, reference point for how free my heart is, is Hitler, you know, could I look at, at Hitler, you know, uh, with compassion, you know, that's always been my reference point, and, you know, I incline my mind to, to go in that direction, you know, you don't have to arrive there, you know, every moment, every time you incline your mind that direction, you're a little bit freer of that reactivity. A little bit. You know, and, and they call this practice the path of purification. So we slowly, as we incline the mind, we slowly begin to release uh, the hold that those defilements have in our hearts. Anyone else? Any other comments? Yes. <laughs> I'm not exactly sure what my question is, but you, I'm really glad that you brought up parenting. And um, my son is very angry, and you help me understand that he's very hurt inside. Um, I'm just having a difficult time in social situations where he's getting really angry and pushing people away, being able to stay present. So what do you do when he, when he acts out? I freeze. Because I don't, I don't want to do more damage. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. And do you look at your own feelings? Um, I just started doing that now yeah. because you mentioned it. Yeah. Because of things yeah. you've been saying. Yeah. And so, so um, you know, so the, in a situation like that, there can be a lot of different mixed emotions going on inside you. Like on one hand, you might have real, real hurt for, for the damage your son is causing to himself, to others. And so there's a real compassion there. Um, fear can, you can have fear for them. Um, you can also be embarrassed. You know, it can, be, it's, it can be very embarrassing that your kid has a fit. You know? and, um, and so, you know, are you accepting those feelings inside yourself? You know, that's really the, the primary thing. And then, you know, then can you accept him? You know, can you incline your mind to accept his suffering? You don't, you don't have to fix it. You don't have to fix it, you know. And can you let that be okay? You know, incline in that direction. So just inclining in the direction of letting it be. Yeah. Letting his feelings yeah. be. Yeah. Yeah, that it's okay that he has to work it out. There, you can't, I don't know how old he is, you know, if eight. it's, a, he's eight, yeah. Yeah, so, so um, you know, maybe you just need to say, to let him know that you love him, even though he's angry. Uh-huh. You know, that might be helpful to him. You know, it's okay that you're angry. You know, often, you know, we give kids the, um, the idea that it's not okay, which adds a lot to their anger. You know, that it's not okay for them to do this, and, and that you're disapproving, and that makes them more angry at themselves and more angry at the world. You know, so sometimes just the accepting uh, of their anger is a really huge step in healing that, that separation that, that starts. Thanks. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a big, it's a really huge topic. Yeah, it's huge. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Thank you. Um, my question is um, about the fear. The fear and um, when you recognize the aversion is fear mm-hmm. um, and sitting with that, sometimes I don't know exactly like where to go. Mm-hmm. Like I get there pretty quick. Like, oh, that's fear. Right. And I don't, I don't have act out and I don't have suppress, but I'm just wondering if there's more I can do with it when I'm there, you know. Maybe sometimes I get caught up then in an expectation of like, I named it, I'm recognizing it, so maybe I get caught up in having an expectation that it should dis- yeah. dissipate or something. Yeah, so, so one of the, the um, little formulas that we use that you may have heard is the RAIN formula. And the RAIN formula is the way, one of the ways to work with afflictive emotions that seem to, it's like we, we know they're there, but we don't know how to put our arms around them, you know. Um, you know, we've all experienced that kind of thing. Yeah, it's there, and what do I do with it, you know. And so it kind of gives you kind of a little systematic way of working with it. Um, um, we want to really understand our emotions, really get them, really see through them. So the first thing which you're doing, you're recognizing it, which is a great first step. The second step is accepting it and not accepting it so that it will go away. <laughs> okay, so, so the, the shift is becoming curious about it. Um, one of the things that happens, the moment that you become curious about fear, it starts transforming it. It's already a different, a different entity. Um, you can't be afraid of something and look and go, oh, what's it like? <laughs> so it starts shifting the fear into something more manageable. You know, um, the one thing you have to remember about fear is that, that fear ang- and anger both cause physiological reactions that continue beyond the point when you're afraid or angry. Okay, so, you know, like when you're in a car, you put on the brakes really quick, you know, and you were really scared, but now you're safe, but your heart's still beating really fast. It takes a few minutes for it to kind of get back down because your whole body flooded with these hormones, the fight-or-flight hormones. So same thing when you're afraid. Maybe the reason you got afraid is, is gone now or you worked it out, but the body's reaction is still there. And sometimes we get a... We, um, that's confusing because the, the root of it went away, but the body's still afraid. Right. That is exactly what I'm talking about is yeah. the somatic practice. Yeah. Of yeah. There's the fear. It's in my body. I know where it is. And then I'm in situations where I'm facilitating things. Yeah. And so I'm on the spot. So there's not a lot of time. Okay. So, so if you're in a situation where you actually need to be cool, 
<laughs> I need I need to get it out pretty quick because yeah. Uh, yeah. people are relying on yeah. me. Yeah. So so one of the things that's really helpful now there's two things that are helpful. If you're doing this a lot, sometimes is having paying attention to anything else but the fear. Paying attention to fear is rarely useful in a situation where you have to act. It actually, uh, you want to pay attention to the act, not the fear. So for instance, if you start focusing on your fear when you're on the edge of a cliff, you get more afraid. <laughs> you know, it doesn't help. What you want to focus is one foot in front of the other, right? That's where the attention wants to go, not how far down to the bottom, right? So, so it's really, what's the most useful place to place your attention when you're publicly speaking? It might be the content of what you have to say, um, what I've often done when I first started publicly speaking, um, you know, once I had a practice, um, I started focusing on loving kindness to everybody else. And, uh, God, I want all these people to really uh, learn something. I want these people to, um, to, to get joy out of the learning. Of, you know, this is such good stuff. I want them to really get it. You know, so so th I would do like a minute or two of loving kindness. It took me away from my fear and it brought me in the right direction. Why I'm even giving the talk, you know? And um, you know, when I used to teach anatomy, you know, I would go, oh, I really want them to understand this, you know. So I'd be really focused on, okay, I want them to get the anatomy of the heart, you know, and, and how fascinating it is, you know. So I'd focus on the material, you know. So um, you know, but I also wouldn't resist, you know, don't resist the emotion that's there. Go, oh yeah, it's there. It's okay, you know, because if you start struggling with it, then you're, again, you're turning your attention towards the fear. You know, just like, um, you know, if you're going for a job interview, that's just not the time to focus on how afraid you are you're not going to get the job. <laughs> you know, you focus on, okay, how, you know, what do they need to know about me? You know, and how do I express my interest in, in or why I'd be really good at this job? You know, there, there's lots of things we can focus on. Thank you so much. You're welcome. I do think yeah. it is that, um, that balance um, for me, and I have my good for sense of my forsake of what, which allows me to do my work. But I think it's an accepting of there is this in this work. There yeah. are those things that I have to work through. It's almost like I'm wanting to be like, well, I've been at this for a long time. I should not have that anymore. Yeah, yeah. Thank yeah. you. It's useful to see what we're actually doing. You know, what, one other thing I want to, you know, I've, I've said this before many times because it had such an impact on my, on my life. One of the very early talks I heard Gil give, um, which was like 1994, and he'd been teaching for a while, you know, and he was, it was a group of about 50 people, and partway through the talk, he forgot what he was talking about. <laughs> and he looked around, he goes, oh, this is awkward. You know, and, but he said it in this very open, sincere way, you know, and, you know, my heart clutched, you know, how could he reveal that about himself? And then he just, um, you know, he's a little uncomfortable. He showed he was a little uncomfortable, and then he just went back to his talk. And he was fine with being uncomfortable, with being seen as, as having an awkward moment. And um, that became my reference point you know, for many, many years, uh, for, you know, wanting to appear perfect, wanting to appear, oh, I don't have any little silent gaps, little uh, misspoken words, you know. <clears throat> it's okay, you know, I'm human, you know. And it, it was uh, really useful teaching for me. You know, he doesn't remember it, but I sure do. <laughs> yes, please. Um, a lot of my um, mental processes are are concerned with um, how people perceive things, how other people perceive things, and how I perceive things. And um, quite often, they're very conflicting. I have one remaining sibling, and her view of, of our relationship and our interactions and our home life is totally opposite from, from mine. And in work situations as well, um, you know, I was a school librarian, and everyone has an idea of what a school library is. Um, and so I have a lot of problems with wanting to set people straight. Mm -hmm. 
and and their perception, wanting to change their perception instead of just accepting it and going on. And I can't figure out who's deluded. <laughs> I think it's probably me, which is um, a little bit upsetting. <laughs> uh, probably everybody's deluded. You know, you've you've heard the story of the three blind men and the elephant. You know, you know, one of them's touching it and says, "You're an elephant." You know, has this this really long trunk. You know, another one says, oh, "It's got this really thick leg." You know, it's you know, it, it, they all feel a different thing, and that's kind of how we are as humans and how we see life. You know, we see life through the colors of our conditioning, uh, the colors of our desires and wants. And, um, and what's really useful in situations like that is not trying to figure out, well, wh- who's right, but what's useful. You know, but probably both points of view are wrong. <laughs> you know, and they're not life. You know, life is not a point of view. You know, life is much more complex than that. So, so what's really useful, like with you and your sister, you know, the things that you have views about, is it just how you evaluate the past or what's really useful in bringing yourself closer with your sister? You know, and so can you have very opposite views? You know, I remember uh, the first time I had uh, a friend from a different political party. You know, boy, was that huge. You know, and then a friend that had uh, different views um, on abortion, you know, or different views on a lot of these really hot issues. You know, one point in my life I thought I could never be friends with someone from a different political party. You know, so, uh, so okay, so, so this is what I think, this is what they think. Neither is the truth. You know, life is so much deeper, so much more. You know, all these isms, all these ideas we have, you know, in a different culture, they, they, they're totally a different game. You know, so what's really, what, what's really important here? What's valuable? Yeah. Um, you know, that it's, it's a topic that could go for a long way. So we're, we're out of time right now, and I'd like to uh, just finish up with just about a minute of, of loving kindness. So if you'd like to just close your eyes and, and just take a moment. And I'm going to begin the loving kindness with a very sh- with, with a short poem that many of you may have heard. It's um, the Guest House by Rumi. This being human is a guest house. Every morning, a new arrival, a joy, a depression, a meanness. Some momentary awareness comes as an unexpected visitor. Welcome and entertain them all, even if they're a crowd of sorrows who violently sweep your house, empty of its furniture. Still, treat each guest honorably. He may be clearing you out for some new delight. The dark thought, the shame, the malice, meet them at the door laughing and invite them in. Be grateful for whoever comes, because each has been sent as a guide from beyond. May all of us in this room be filled with loving kindness. May we all be happy. May we be peaceful. May we feel safe. May we be at ease. May all beings everywhere, everyone we meet, our friends and families, all the people we casually encounter in our lives, may all beings be happy. May all beings be peaceful.
May all beings be at ease. May all beings be filled with joy. <laughs>